Would you open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians? And we're in the fourth chapter. And as you're turning there, let's just take a little bit of review of history. The way the Civil War began was with a conflict that arose at Fort Sumter. And when Fort Sumter fell to the rebel forces, the, the conflict itself began to heat up. The first land battle that was fought between the Confederate Army and the Union Army was fought at a place called Bull Run, if you're a Yankee. If you're a Confederate, it was fought at Manassas. The Confederates had a, a policy of naming the battles after towns that were close to where the battles took place. The Yankees had the, the habit of naming them after rivers and bodies of water where these battles would take place. So whether you call it uh, Manassas or Bull Run, a lot depends on your orientation, I guess. So on July 21st of 1861, that battle began. The people of the nation, particularly in the north, thought that this was going to be a relatively easy victory for the Union Army. Uh, you've probably heard that there were parties going on and people came out and stood on the hillsides, brought basket lunches. I, I don't know if all of that is true or not, but there did seem to be a bit of a party atmosphere that surrounded this battle because the belief was that this would initiate a war that would be ended within a very, very short period of time. They thought perhaps three months. As the battle unfolded, the Confederate Army demonstrated an incredible capability in fighting, even when significantly outnumbered. And as a result of that, the Union Army was actually pushed back. And the people who thought that this battle was uh, just the beginning of a very short war came to realize something very, very different. There were going to be lives lost by the thousands. There was going to be incredible sacrifice that was going to have to be made by both the, the Union and the Confederate armies and the people in both of those areas. There was now going to be a whole new level of commitment because of the realization that this is not going to be a quick war. And as you have read history and as you've learned, it lasted for years. And the deaths and the injuries and all of the loss that was suffered was, was just terrible. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote to a church that was living in the arms of, I guess, what we would call a party atmosphere. They had become very, very comfortable with their own gathering. As a matter of fact, things had really turned inward at the church. They, they, they were really uh, without a real vision of reaching out to the pagan world around them. So they were comfortable within themselves, but then because of human nature and because they had not committed themselves to the purpose that the Lord had established for them, conflicts began to arise within the church. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote because they had actually sent him 
a number of different questions that he would later be answering. And we are going to get to those, Lord willing, as we go in the weeks ahead. Right now, he is helping them reorient themselves. He wants them to understand they're at war. They're not at the mountain. They are in the valley. And the war is raging. And he wants them to understand what God's people have to know and have to do in order to be the soldiers that God wants them to be in a spiritual warfare that is going to continue until the Savior returns. Look with me, if you will, back here at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And we begin reading down here at verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless And we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ. I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or in love and a spirit of gentleness? These Corinthians lost sight of their purpose. They lost sight of the reason for which the Lord planted them as a church in the city of Corinth. Now Paul is writing back to them to help them understand how believers should live who are engaged in spiritual warfare. And he begins by drawing their attention to a a, a rift 
that was evident within the church body itself. And he wants them to understand, if you're going to be involved in this battle for truth, this spiritual warfare, there can't be any divisions in the rank. You cannot live in conflict with one another. And this is exactly what was happening. Instead of dealing with issues related to the spiritual enemy that they had, they became enamored with the conflict that that they were having with one another. Do you remember how Paul began this letter? He said, some of you say, well, I am of Paul. Others say, I am of Apollos. Others say, I am of Cephas. And then the ultra-righteous ones say, I am of Christ. And you're picking at each other. And, And there are these divisions and conflicts that are going on. He said, don't you understand? If you're fighting each other, you can't engage in the battle against the real enemy. And so he calls them to understand, listen, you've got to grasp the fact that you've got only one commander. And it's not any person that is leading a group that is dividing from the other groups. No man should ever be followed just because of his natural capabilities or his personality or his winsomeness. There is one who leads us. When you think about the church in Corinth, you say, okay, I can see they, they must have had leaders in each of those groups and they were following those leaders. And I, I bring that down through the centuries to what we see today. And sadly, there are those who embrace the Christian faith who rise and fall with a mere man. They will follow a personality. They will hitch their wagon to somebody that seems to have great capability. And they fall into the same trap that the Corinthians had fallen into. They follow a man instead of the Lord. No man is worthy to be followed. As a matter of fact, when men open the word of God... It is the responsibility of the followers of Christ to make sure that what he's saying is true. Do you know where that burden falls? On us. And by the way, I listen to other preachers too. I I listen and I think about the things that they say and most of the time the people I listen to I agree with. But every once in a while, one will say something. I'll say, no, I don't think that's right. And by God's grace, I never want to follow any man into war. Christ is the only one who is worthy to be followed. And Paul reminds them of that. And then notice this in verse 7. He talks to them about the, the, the severity of the problem. He's saying, don't you dare set anybody against anybody else within the, the, the realm of the church. Look, for who, uh, pardon me, verse 6, not 7, verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I figuratively transfer to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. There, there's no place for us to be against one another within the church. We have other enemies to fight. And, okay, here's the good thing. 
when when I'm I'm preaching, I, I like to look at your faces and I like to get an idea of what you're thinking. And I'm thinking to myself that right now some of you have the idea that I'm thinking about some great conflict that's going on within our church. Are you worried about that? Well, you don't need to be. I am not talking about a conflict that's going on within our church. Though it could. It could. Unless we are careful to keep our focus where it belongs... It is possible for one to rise up against another and the conflict to drain the energy that is to be used to be the followers of Christ that the Lord is calling us to be. As Paul goes on, he says this, you not only have one commander that you follow, but you have only one source of supply. And I want you to listen carefully down here at verse 7 where it says this, Who makes you differ from another? All right? Now we're going to get into some areas where you may have had some very heavy questions. Lord, why did you put me in the family that you put me? Lord, why did you create me with capabilities that fall short of the norm? Lord... How come I work so hard and I don't seem to get ahead? Lord, why did you give me the children you gave me? That one could take a little time. But listen, who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Listen, Christ is the one who has given us everything we have. And I think we lose sight of that. I think when when a person uses phraseology such as this, I'm a self-made man. Okay. Let's start with a couple questions about that. Who determined where you would be born? What if you had been born in Yemen? Would your life be any different? What do you have that you have not been given by God? If you had been born in Beijing, would you be any different? Absolutely. God selected the place where you were born. He selected the time in which you were born. He gave you everything you have. You say, no, I worked very, very hard to get where I am today. Then let me ask you this question. Who gave you the energy to work that hard? Who gave you the body and the mind that allowed you to engage yourself in an occupation that has allowed you to get ahead? Or you might say, I am so frustrated, I have worked very hard, and I have a good mind, and I, and I just can't get ahead. Let me tell you something. God has a plan in everything that He has given us. He has given you the family that He has given you, and you say, hmm, thanks a lot. 
And, and I really mean this. I, I'm, I'm not kidding about this. Because some of you might look at your family and say, oh, man, if you knew what my family was like. Here's the thing. I don't have to know what your family's like. What I do know is what your creator is like and what the savior is like. And I know this. His desire is to conform his children to the image of Jesus Christ. And if that requires our being born into a family that is really tough, so be it. See, he, he saw us before the foundation of the world. He knew us from all eternity past. I can't grasp that. But then I'm not God. And if I could grasp it, I'd be God. But I'm not. And so I look at this and I say, he has a purpose and plan. Why did he give you the kids he gave you? I've asked that question. And I really believe this. They have brought blessing. And they brought something else. And there are times I would look and I'd say, Lord... Why us? And he'd say, because you need what you will learn through your children. And you know what the Lord does? He starts chipping away at the rough spots. And he gives us just what he wants us to have. Who's given you your job? Who is? Uh, listen, we could go right down a list of things that we have been given by the grace of God, and all we can do is stand back and say, thank you. And you say, how can I thank him for a mate that walked out on me? How can I thank him for parents that were abusive? How can I thank him for a relative who took advantage of me physically? How can I thank him for these things? And I will tell you this, no sin is ever going to be hung upon the Lord. But what I do know is that he can take even the most sinful events that have taken place and the most hurtful events, and he can cause them to work to make you the person he wants you to be. Because it doesn't end here. Do you all know that? It doesn't end here. We're in the process of being fashioned. We're in the process of being formed. And there are all kinds of different pressures that come to play when we're being fashioned and formed. Everything we are, He has made us. Do you remember what we read in Romans 8? And I had mentioned to you earlier that there is going to be part of this passage that is going to, to relate to our message here. Here's the part. Whom He foreknow... He predestined. And He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Uh, sometimes the word predestination gets people all tied up in a knot. Listen, understand what predestination is. Predestination is God's purpose in making us conform to the image of His Son. That's exactly what Paul said. If you don't believe me, go back and read it again in Romans chapter 8. He has desired that we develop in the qualities of character that are demonstrated in the person of Christ. I believe that the, the epitome of those qualities of character are identified for us as the fruit of the Spirit. 
And when the Spirit of God is in control of us, He produces the fruit, the love, the joy, the peace, the kindness, the gentleness, the meekness, the long-suffering, the self-control, all of those things that were characteristic of Christ. That's what He's making us. So whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, and whom He predestined, He justified, pardon me, He called, and whom He called, He justified, and whom He justified, He glorified. Now, when we get to Romans chapter 8, if I'm here 20 years from now, and we get to Romans chapter 8, and we look at that passage, what you're going to see is this. The Lord is speaking of each of those things that He has made us. He has, he has redeemed us. He has made me a child of His. He has given me the rights of an adult son through adoption, not only being born into his family, but then giving the, being given the, the rights of an adult son. And he has declared me righteous because of my identification with his son who took my sin in my place and gave me his righteousness in his place. And I, I enjoy all these benefits, including being predestined, being called, being justified, and being glorified. Wait a minute. Are you looking at a glorified individual? Come on, be honest. Are you looking at someone who is glorified? <laughs> I, I think Edith said yes. Edith, I'm going to have to pay you for that comment. But the truth of the matter is, I hate to tell you this, but I'm not glorified yet. But yet, I do know what you mean. In that context, it's written that it's, an, it's a done deal. But it hasn't been my experience yet until I'm in the presence of the Lord. But it is so certain from God's point of view that I will be in His presence and I will be conformed to the image of His Son that He can say, right now you're glorified. <laughs> it's done. Nothing's going to keep you from being glorified. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Height, depth, danger, death, any of these things. Nothing will separate. So I'm going to get there. What do I have that he hasn't given me? Nothing. And so he says, listen. When you begin to realize why I've left you here, you need to understand something. You don't fight with each other. You fight the battle I've called you to fight. And you engage in that battle. And he moves on into the next area of this passage. and And he tells us, I want you engaged in the battle for truth because you're not home yet. This helps us understand some of the things I've said already. Some people might say this. Well, pastor, it's easy for you to stand up there and say these things, but you do not know what I have been through. And I agree with you completely. The message that I would share with you today is not because I have any special capability or knowledge of you, but I do have a knowledge of God's Word and I know what He said. And so I'm letting Him be the one 
who identifies for us the realities of what we go through in life. I don't know what you've been through. Some of you may have been raped. I don't know. Some of you may have been abused as children. Some of you may have been rejected by your families. Some of you may have become the target of people who hate you in your workplace. And they have made life absolutely miserable for you. I, I do know that I don't know. And so I can't speak to you as somebody that has the knowledge of you. But I do know what the Lord has said. And here's what He's told us. You're not home yet. Pastor, how can you talk about those awful things? You've never seen the horrors of war that I've seen. You've never lived with the, the agony of wondering if the next shell is landing in, in your foxhole. No, I haven't. I've not experienced that. But I do know this. In this life, we're going to have trouble. And some people forsake the Lord because they believe in the light of their horrible experiences of life, God has somehow abandoned them. When the reality is, what they want is the benefit of being in heaven, which we're not there yet. And so we still get cancer. And we die in car accidents. And we lose limbs because of severe illnesses. And we experience rejection. And we experience people who look at us and will abuse us at every chance they get simply because they are enemies of the truths for which we stand. And it is a tough life. But you know where we're living we're in the valley. Right, Greg? We're in the valley. The mountain experience of knowing the Savior. The mountain experience of being with the Savior. The valley experience of being here. And if we would just remember the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will follow. And I don't have to know what you've been through. What I do know is this. We have a God who says, whatever you've been through, what I have planned for you is a whole lot greater. Be patient. Be patient. Paul looks at these Corinthians. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Um, there are a lot of little things in Scripture that are really, sometimes it's really easy to read through them and not really grasp what, what's being said, or to, to read Scripture kind of, uh, the only way I know to express this is in a monotone fashion. To just read and read and read, and everything comes up the same. And, and whether we're speaking about the love of God, whether we're speaking about the judgment of God, whether we're speaking about the failure of man, whether we're speaking about the usefulness that God makes with man, whatever the, the situation is, we just kind of read it the same. Don't do that when you come to this next section that we're, we're going to look at now. 
This is one of those things that I really enjoy, though I understand it's not a great thing, but are any of you sarcastic? Do you, do you use sarcasm with people? I, I never am sarcastic. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was sarcastic. Paul speaks to these Corinthians in a level of sarcasm that is just, it's really funny. I mean, when you look at this, he's saying, hey, look, oh, you guys. Now, just try to imagine this. You guys, you, you got it all together. You're the big shots. You're the kings. Boy, I wish you were a king, because then maybe I could reign with you, because I'm no king. Look at what he says. You come down here to verse 8, and he says, uh, you are already full. Do you, are you catching the sarcasm here? Okay, what he's saying is, you're not full. Okay? Uh, you are already rich. You're not rich. You have reigned as kings without us, and indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we may also uh, reign with you. And now he's going to draw himself as an example to these people in Corinth. And he says this, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Now he goes on and he begins to identify the realities of what he is in the valley where we live right now. And as he goes through this, he uses himself as an example to contrast the reality with the way the Corinthians were looking at themselves. They looked at themselves like, man, we got it all together. We're just a happy bunch. We get together on Sundays and we sing. And by the way, the singing again this morning was wonderful. Do you know when I hear you all sing so well, do you know what it makes me think of? When our missionaries shared with us how the Chinese tell us, you sing at the top of your voices because we're not allowed to sing. And I just, I love it. I just love when we just belt those songs out, whether we're on key or not. It helps to be on key. It makes it more pleasant, but it's really not the issue. We are just raising our voices to the Lord. And how did I get on that? I don't remember. But it was good stuff, so it's okay. What Paul is going to do is tell them the truth. And he says, listen, he says, you need to understand, those of us who are apostles, we are esteemed the least. And yet, these are the people that God used to bring the eternal truth of his word to us. He said that in verse 9, he said, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to the angels and to men. Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. He's saying this. We're not living to exalt ourselves. When you are a follower of Christ, 
you live a selfless lifestyle. Do do, do you hear the call coming now? Now he's starting to talk to them. He's saying, you guys, you're, you're partying as believers. You're enjoying all the benefits. But now let me tell you the reality. You're in war. The war has started. It's not going to be quick. It's not going to be easy. It's going to require a variety of different things. You're not going to be esteemed because of your faith in Christ. You're going to have to live a selfless lifestyle. You've got to be willing to sacrifice. Look at verse 11. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. Did you ever picture the Apostle Paul as homeless? That's what he said. We're homeless. He goes on in verse 12, to talk about the labors that he has disciplined himself in. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure. Then he comes to verse 13. Being defamed, we entreat, we have been made as the filth of the world and offscouring of all things until now. And yet, in all of that trouble, he still maintains a Christ-like attitude and a Christ-like spirit. And he's saying, listen, life is going to be a bummer. There's going to be trouble. Just remember this. You're not home yet. We will be one day. We're just not yet. Then... He calls them to continue the fight. Get back to the battle. Some of you have just withdrawn. You're not involved in the battle anymore. You Corinthians, you've got people all around you who need the Savior. Go back and fight the spiritual warfare that needs to be fought to reach these people and to cause them to become genuine followers of Christ. And so he goes on and he talks about this and he says, look, I want you to be sure that you're fighting the right enemy. You remember how they were conflicted with each other. Let me tell you who's not the enemy. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are not the enemy. And yet, listen, any of you who have been involved in the military, probably all of you know this. Do you know there are a lot of people that die in the American military from friendly fire? We drop bombs on our own men. We shoot our own men. You can think of specifics. Uh, The football player, uh, Tillman, when he became... A soldier, you, you heard he was killed by our own gunners. They shot him. We've had units of men who have been killed by friendly fire. And your heart breaks when you say these men and women have been over there fighting for our freedoms and, and trying to take a stand for the American way. And whether you agree or disagree with those issues, the sad part is that sometimes we kill our own. Sometimes we kill our own. Sometimes we wound our own. 
And the Lord says, your own are not the enemy. Let me add this. The lost are not the enemy. Do you all understand that? People who do not know Christ as Savior are not the enemy. Adulterers are not the enemy. Homosexuals are not the enemy. Thieves are not the enemy. Murderers are not the enemy. Those are all people for whom Jesus Christ died. They are the objects of our willingness to go to war to have the privilege of sharing with them the hope that is found in the person of Christ. When we come across unsaved people, isn't it great to be able to say to a person who is unsure about his eternal destiny, a person who understands that there is sin that is in his or her life that somehow needs to be paid for, and they believe that by doing works they can pay for it themselves, and they never feel completely satisfied, they never feel as if they have accomplished what they believe God will want them to to do in order to gain his merit, and they're looking for something that will bring them peace, and you and I can go and say this, Jesus Christ took the penalty of all of your sin upon himself when he died on the cross. And there is no sin that you can commit that's too great for him to forgive. And Jesus Christ died so you don't have to die spiritually, or I should say eternally, And he was buried and he rose again from the dead so that you would be absolutely sure that the sacrifice that he offered had been accepted by a holy God. And God now says to you, you can't work your way into my presence. There's nothing you can do that will satisfy my righteous standards. And so I extend to you this offer of grace. You believe what I have to say. And what I have to say is that I have provided the payment for your sin. And you accept my son as your savior. Turning from your sinful ways and committing yourself having repented. That's just turning around and saying, I don't want sin to be my master anymore. I want Jesus Christ to be my Savior. I repent of my sins and I embrace Christ and receive Him for my forgiveness and my eternal life. That's a great message, isn't it? We have hope for everybody. And by the way, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as Savior... That hope is for you. If you will trust Christ, and you might say, well, within my heart, I I have a sense that there is something that I need in what you're saying. Then I would just say to you, right where you are, right where you are, you reach out to the Lord in faith, and you say, Lord, I believe that Jesus died for me. And I believe he rose again from the dead, and I accept him as my Savior. The neat thing is this. When you eat that bread of life, you don't get hungry again. 
when you drink from the well of life, you don't get thirsty again. You really don't. Christ satisfies completely. Now, he's not there as your benefactor to give you everything you want. He's there to be your savior, to give you eternal life, and to see that you get home safely. But you may go through a really rough time right now. But that's okay, because he'll walk with you through those rough times. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And so Paul is calling these people. He says, let's get back into the battle. Your war is against the powers of darkness. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness. We have a spiritual enemy that we're fighting, and it means we're at war, which means we may have to sacrifice, we may have to suffer, we may have to do things that we really don't want to do. We're called to continue this fight, just like the Corinthians were. We're supposed to be at war with spiritual enemies. You might say, Pastor, if I, if I do what you're suggesting Paul has called the church to do, that's going to be hard. That's going to be, it's going to require some sacrifice on my part. It may be painful. You're at war. We forget that. We are in spiritual war. And we live as if we're at peace. You say, I'm too old. No, you're experienced. You say, I'm too young. No, you're energetic. You say, I'm too unworthy. No, you've been forgiven. You say, I'm not trained. You can learn. You say, I'm dot, dot, dot. Bottom line, you have no excuse. You have no excuse. We're at war. We need to be in the trenches. Paul wanted them to understand why this was so important. And here's his final point to them. You've got to be ready for the day of reckoning. Now, he uses himself in this, and he says, look, I'm coming to you, and I'm not going to read these verses again for time's sake, but let me just get it down to the bottom line. He says, listen, some of you, you write letters to me, and some of those letters are not so nice. Have you ever gotten a nasty letter? I, I, in, in 31 years of ministry, I have gotten, I think, two anonymous letters, and I wish I had not read either one of them. So I made a decision. If I get an anonymous letter, there's no signature. I don't even read it. It goes right into the trash. It's, it's done. Here is Paul getting some letters that apparently are coming from people who do not agree with what he has to say, and they're not nice letters. And he says, ah, some of you, you, you send word to me about what you're like. And he says, here's what I want to tell you. <laughs> you don't want an apostle saying this to you. I'm coming. And when I'm going to get there, I'm going to find out if you are manifesting power or if these are just empty words. And then he says this. 
Now, see, Christians, we're not supposed to talk about this sort of thing. It's not supposed to be part of our experience. He says, when I come to you, how do you want me to come? Do you want me to come with a rod? (laughs) Now, see, you're not supposed... Pastors aren't supposed to ever say nasty things or get people upset or, or do things that don't make you feel good. But Paul was saying this to the Corinthians. He says, you want me to come with a rod? What's he saying? He says, I can come and be tough with you guys if you want me to be. He says, or will you listen to what God has to say and let me come to you with a heart filled with love? It's up to you. Do you know that the same thing is true when we stand before the Savior? It's up to you how you stand before him. He looks at you and says, you know what? You lived your life as if there was no spiritual war going on. You had no concern for the lost or very little. You had little involvement in furthering the kingdom and being involved in my work. And so, yeah, you're saved. You've accepted the sacrifice of my son and so I'm going to let you in. But boy, you've really been a disappointment. Oh. Can you imagine the Lord saying that to you? Oh, my goodness. How would you ever look into his face? You've disappointed me. Or, I am so happy to welcome you home. What you did was the demonstration of a person who's willing to open his life, her life, to my power, my strength, my desires. Great to have you home, my child. We know. Well done. Good and faithful servant. What will it be? Paul put it in front of the Corinthians. He said to them, what will it be? And the echo rings through two centuries of time and it comes to Grace Baptist Church and it says, what will it be? It's up to you. Father, you are a God of grace. You are a God of kindness, a God of mercy. And Father, we don't deserve any of it. We take you at your word. There is a spiritual warfare that's going on. And I pray that each one of us as we leave this place would go from here knowing that we can either engage in the conflict or hide in the comfort of our own environs. I pray, Father, that you would cause us as a church, as individuals, to be involved in the battle for truth, to show the love of Christ, and to accomplish the purpose for which you've called us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.